The Retrograde Approach, Episode 22, supported by the ANZ SVS, Balancing Research and Clinical Careers in Vascular Surgery with Dr. Leonard Chan. It's an absolute privilege to have you on tonight as we uh, bring about the 22nd episode of the Retrograde Approach. Tonight, we are going to look at how does um, a trainee consultant um, balance both a research and clinical career in vascular surgery. Sam, it's an absolute privilege tonight. We are joined by a colleague of ours who we had the privilege of training with uh, during our years uh, in vascular surgical training, but also um, to be a colleague with him in the broad landscape that is vascular surgery in Australia. Um, tonight, we have the absolute privilege of having Dr. Leonard Shan, an academic vascular surgeon, honorary senior fellow in the Department of Surgery at the University of Melbourne, joining us. Uh, he received his medical education at the University of Melbourne, where he graduated with honours. Uh, following vascular surgical training at multiple centres in Melbourne and Auckland, he joined the vascular staff at St Vincent's Hospital in 2020. His academic interest is in outcomes-based research, which has helped to improve the understanding of patient-related uh, reported outcomes after intervention. He serves on the editorial board of the Annals of Vascular Surgery and is a regular reviewer uh, for the European Journal of Vascular and Endovascular Surgery and the Journal of Vascular Surgery. Leonard is currently undertaking a PhD on the patient reported outcomes and economic evaluation of arterial surgery with Professor Peter Chung at the University of Melbourne, where he is the recipient of an Australian Government Research Training Program Scholarship. Uh, Sam, it's a privilege for both of us to hear from Dr. Leonard Chan tonight. Leonard, welcome. Thank you. Thanks for having me. Thanks, Leonard. So, um, Leonard, we, it's, it's great to have you. We want to rack your brain a little bit tonight as we um, try and get our grasp around the timing of research in an academic vascular surgeon's life, um, one that you're currently living and continue to do in the years to come. But I thought perhaps the best, the best place to start would be for, for us to hear a little bit about the project that you're currently working on. What was your inspiration for it and how did you get yourself started in your research career? Yeah, sure. Thanks. Thanks for having me guys. And thanks for the question. So um, in essence, my research journey, I think really started as a medical student. Um, and I think that's sort of where this all interest thing starts. Um, but I did a lot of work in quality of life research in a number of different fields and I happened to do vascular surgery. And so I focused down in the end on that throughout, I must say throughout training, I did heavily um, consider doing, you know, a, a PhD during training, but uh, for a number of reasons, which you can top on later, it never happened. Um, but what I w intended to do was to follow on, on the idea of quality of life research in vascular surgery. And what I wanted to do was to go overseas to do that. And I can talk about, I guess, some of the reasons for that. And then COVID happened. Um, and so I ended up doing my PhD here. But in essence, if I could sum up the project, I think that was the your, your first question, I guess, is um, in my short experience so far, is that in vascular surgery, we rely very heavily, in Australia at least, 
um, in determining our treatment pathways and what we select or recommend to patients, we base that a lot on mortality outcomes, complication outcomes, and what we call clinician reported outcomes. So that's heavily practitioner clinician based. But you know, the literature is very clear that actually we're moving towards this idea of value-based healthcare. And that needs to take into account patient reported outcomes, such as of which quality of life is the most sort of central aspect. Um, and you can use that and apply that to things like health policy with economic evaluations and cost utility analysis or cost effectiveness analysis. And um, my project, the title that you've read is obviously very broad, but what I've decided on uh, is that, as you guys well know, chronic limb threatening scheme is very topical. It's a challenging and expensive and difficult problem to treat. And so for me, it made a lot of sense to focus on quality of life in that field. But through the first year and what is it, year and a half now of my PhD, what I've realized is that, you know, you need the right tool to do the job, yeah. And so to begin with, you need the right measurement tool and we call these quality of life instruments. And um, what, what we found is that we don't have one for chronically threatening ischemia. And the reason we don't have one is it's very difficult to develop. And the modern instrument development processes are very multidisciplinary. They take a long time um, if you do it well. Otherwise, your instrument gets laid by the wayside and is no longer used forevermore. Um, and so that's, in essence, the crux of what I'm doing now is to develop an instrument. Um, part of the issue is that we didn't really have the infrastructure here in Melbourne, at least. I don't know about elsewhere around, the, around Australia, but we don't really have the infrastructure. Um, and that's why initially I had lined up to go to Imperial College in London and do it with Charing Cross um, over there. But COVID happened, a child happened, life happened. And um, in essence, I stayed here. But what I did was uh, I managed to do it with the head of department, currently Peter Chung, um, with my original intended supervisor as an international co-supervisor. So that's sort of a, I'm sorry if that sounds like a bit of rambling, but it is sort of a lot of years condensed into a short period of time. <laughs> and so your PhD has multiple phases and you've kindly provided us with a little bit of background tonight prior to this in terms of where you're up to. Um, through the five phases that you've been through so far, could you talk through some of the sort of things I know you've, you've talked about the transition from sort of clinical uh, clinician outcome based sort of values to a more patient centered approach to CLTI. What are some of the things that you feel are fundamental from your sort of introductory work so far that you'd want vascular surgeons to know apart from the significance of CLTI, what, what sort of things would you summarize to the vascular surgeons out there? Sure. Okay. So I've done three, I think key studies to date and they're very nicely linked. The first is a comprehensive review of the instruments that we have currently been using to measure quality of life. The second is the actual quality of life outcomes that have been measured in chronic limb threatening ischemia across the major treatment modalities that is revascularization, major limb amputation, conservative management. And the third is a cost utility or cost effectiveness analysis of these treatments in chronic limb threatening ischemia. The, and in essence, what this shows, the, the first paper shows that we don't have the right tools to do this, even though the number of studies on this has increased dramatically since 1992. So it's obviously an area of interest, but we just don't have the right ability to do so in essence. 
But yet, interestingly enough, the second paper that includes something like 9,000 patients and 55 studies to date already on this subject uh, shows a whole heap of different results. But having done that first paper, we know that we probably can't necessarily even believe those results because of the lack of an instrument. But the other thing is that there's so many, because it's a lack of an instrument, there's so many different ones that are used in its place of a specific tool that you end up with this hodgepodge mix, uh, heterogeneous mix of all sorts of measurement tools that may or may not make sense together. Even though the number of studies seems like a lot and you seem like you might be able to make it some sort of conclusion. So what we found is that not only is the method of measurement problematic, but also the way in which these studies are designed is problematic in that there's a huge amount of bias, a huge amount of poor study design. And what we're left with is the third paper, which is, well, can we use any of this to inform health policy is really the question there. No. Um, and what, what I'm, I guess, raising here is, is a little bit controversial because we think we know what we're doing for patients in chronic limb threatening ischemia at the very least, right? I'm not so sure because at least from a data point of view, I couldn't be sure. Um, and we, in, in terms of the second paper that looked at the outcomes, we had, you know, I will call it preliminary data that shows that actually the quality of life benefits of revascularization are modest at, mm. at best. And that's without a specific tool to look at it, I agree, but modest and that amputation and conservative management doesn't necessarily worsen your quality of life. Now, if you think about it, that kind of makes sense, right? Because these patients are sick. They mm -hmm. die from and have problems and admissions for other reasons. So you could save the limb, but if they come in with a heart attack, what's to say their quality of life could be worse despite keeping the limb? So that's a very basic kind of um, summation of it all. But in essence, the question comes down to quality, 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 right? Is are we doing the best thing for the patient? And how are we measuring what we're doing um, as one thing. Now, I've also written a fourth paper, which takes a different spin because this is an outcomes-based approach, right? Which is you do an intervention and you see what the outcomes are and quality of life is an outcome. I've taken another spin because what I envisage my instrument to do in the future is to do one better. And I'll tell you how to do one better. But to do one better is to you, me, Sam, as clinicians, it's very difficult to understand a research tool in a clinical setting. You know what I mean? Like if I brought a tool to you and said, oh, this is what this shows, this is what it's likely to be. Yes, you might go, okay, that's one of a group of measures I might use and that's what I would do to guide what I might suggest to my patients. But what I really want to know is something like the ABCD score or something like the Chad's Vat score mm. where I can look at a patient in front of me, do some simple scoring or take a quality of life measurement and go, right, you might fit into a traffic light system kind of category where red light, green light, orange light, red light means you, you even if I did something, it would not benefit you. Uh, green light means absolutely go ahead and orange light means, well, there's a bit of clinical equipoise here. But in essence, if I can take quality of life instruments and it's outcome, you know, the measurement as a risk stratification or prognostic tool, that's when a clinician's really gonna be interested because that's when we have a point of care test to mm -hmm. say, how can I immediately impact? Because it's difficult, isn't it? When you say, oh, three months, six months down the track, this is what it's gonna be like. Well, for many clinicians at the moment, unless they have a lot of experience with um, quality of life research, they might think my number one goal is to save the limb. Mm -hmm. uh, this is a problem in front of me right now. 
they, but it's and that's understandable because I can't tell you based on the patient's quality of life whether they'll benefit or not. But we have the clinical intuition, don't we? If a patient's mm-hmm. got high level care needs, is demented um, or cognitively impaired or is wheelchair bound already, you're already making those generalized assumptions that they probably wouldn't benefit from a major revascularization procedure, but we just don't have a very scientific or formalized way of doing that. And for me, that's the end goal. But having said that, I'll, I'll say to get to that point is a lifetime's worth of work. That, that's our, you know, it can take 10 years to develop a quality of life instrument. So for example, the SF36, which is well regarded and most people know about, that's yep. very well developed, multidisciplinary tool. It's also why it's got tens of thousands of citations in almost every field of medicine there is. But obviously as a generic tool, we're not hoping to be that ambitious, but at the very least, it needs to be something that's at the end of the day, clinically relevant, feasible, able to be utilized, accessible, cheap. These are all the things that current instruments don't really think about. So that's sort of what I'm working on at the moment. Yeah, it's incredible. The the sort of pie in the sky approach that you've taken, it's, you know, uh, incredibly aspirational in terms of where you're trying to be. And my head of unit would often say to me that vascular surgery in many ways is a palliative surgical specialty as we try and challenge the sort of thinking in terms of who and what sort of patient would you offer an intervention to. And I think it's become a lot more difficult in the year of vascular surgery that we practice because of minimally invasive techniques. We do not always appreciate the significant morbidity that's associated with that. Um, you know, uh, an endovascular intervention can be just as long as an open procedure. If we then take into all into account all the adjuncts that we try and pursue, uh, mm. especially as we advance the technology, which makes our specialty incredible for what we're able to do, but um, fundamentally, as you said, is it actually improving that patient's quality of life by subjecting them to this uh, enormous uh, endovascular intervention? Sometimes that can be. Uh, you know, I, I think we've all questioned that. Sambo, what do you think? I just, <clears throat> I think we'll touch on uh, Leonard's kind of unique um, academic and working um, situation during the podcast, but I'm just curious if it's affected what you're doing in your day-to-day job at the moment where you're kind of looking at all this and then you're on call the next week and then you, <laughs> you get a 85-year-old <laughs> demented woman or a demented no, patient from the nursing home. Yeah. Correct, and, and I mean, this is fasc- this is why to me research is fascinating, because one thing, and I'll be honest with you, I, I never bonded with the idea of doing um, basic science research, for example, because I just couldn't see it translating to what I would do day to day fast enough. It's important, but just not fast enough to impact. Um, and that's maybe the surgical side of me. I need it now. I need to know now exactly how this is going to work. Mm. Um, I have to say, I do. It does impact me but I take it with a grain of salt because it's not something that is proven yet, truly. And I can only say that my data is indicative, but unless it is truly proven with say high quality randomized control trials as such, I'm not sort of using that as the only measure as I was touching on before. It's gotta be part of a whole group of thinking. But I tell you what one of my mentors once told me, which is I've just hung onto this idea for, for since the beginning of training, which is, at some point, either at the end of training, and most for most people, it's consultant life where maybe, you know, when you become after about five or seven years out, at some point, you become relatively comfortable with the vast majority of operations. 
and there reaches a point where you're no longer technically challenged or worried about and i'll be honest i'm still worried about certain operations i still find some operations challenging and maybe even some you know definitely now i'd still ask for senior colleagues to come in and give me a hand but there is a point where you feel like you're able to do it all the question is not can you do it the hardest question a surgeon needs to answer is when should you not operate Mm. And that's what I'm finding more and more as I'm a consultant is I've got a patient in front of me and I, I have the ability and perhaps the power you might call it or, or the, the know-how to be able to tell that patient, yeah, this is what we should do or yeah, let's go ahead. And often it's the ones that are cognitively intact, but maybe not so uh, physiologically who are really keen to have something uh, therapeutically interventionally done but in whom you have to uh, almost, you know, take, don't take the temptation, if you will, of operating on someone like this because you might be doing more harm. So, and that's a, that's a constant battle I have is who, who do you not operate on? And at what point do you make that call to say no? That's going to be a gray area. And that's something that most people spend a lifetime trying to get right. And I'm going to spend a lifetime trying to get that right. What I find my work doing is maybe it helps me in a different way to get that right. So I often ask my patients like, um, we, we, okay, I, I'll give you, I, I think I'm not sure time allows, but I'll give you an example. So we, we recently had a patient who came in, um, who was sort of about 70, I think with a paravisceral mycotic aortic aneurysm. And it had been there for a couple of weeks, the classic kind of increasing back pain, now developing some adjacent osteomyelitis. It looks angry. Um, but the guy is just not crisp, you know, just not the best candidate for something that you would know is going to be massive. doesn't matter which way you go about it, whether you go full open, hybrid, full end, or whatever you want to do, it's going to be big. And initially he said, you know, I'm here. What are you going to do about it? Let's go. Like I'm ready. You know, what, what time can we get this fixed? I'm just, uh, I'm ready. And I said to him, you know, yeah, I think we should do it. Like, uh, I think you're very relatively young. Um, I think it's sort of difficult to say no, you just have Mm. to do it. Um, But after doing a bit more digging, it turns out, you know, that the social circumstances weren't great. He didn't have a lot of support. He was very dependent on a focal frame. He's just on paper young, but not really. Mm. And I sort of said to him, if, if I worded to you a different way, if I said that it was really a flip of a coin, whether you ever got out of an institution, like if I said to you, we'll save your life, but you're going to be in a nursing home, how would you feel about that? Um, or if I said to you that you're going to be depressed for the rest of your life, there's a, there's a chance that you might be depressed for the rest of your life. Would that change your decision-making? And I very much put it to them as to saying, you know, there's no right or wrong answer, but these are the things if I were you, I would consider. And we gave the guy, I think something like 24 hours to have a think about it. And you know, the next day he just said to me, you know, I don't think about it. And I said, I just like, what for? I'm already in a wheelchair. My life sucks as it is. I'm already depressed. I can't see myself, even if I survive this five, six hour operation, being happy afterwards. Mm-hmm. And if you're saying to me, there's an X risk of death complications that we all know about, no what I want you to do is to treat my pain. That's the thing that's bothering the most and it's impacting my quality of life. And I I would just like to live the rest of my life, no matter how long that is, 
as good as I can. And that that's the kind of situation I think where perhaps this sort of work mm-hmm. is really meaningful. But if you've got a 30 year old with a thrombose popliteal aneurysm who is otherwise well, this is a much less relevant issue, right? Yeah. So this, I think, is is you know, if you're talking about acute emergencies in well patients, I think this is less relevant. But if you're talking about difficult clinical situations, this is where it might really help. There's a fantastic message there, Leonard, and I think especially for the broader audience that listen to our podcast, who often ponder why a surgeon makes a decision that they do in regards to offering or not offering a, sur- a patient an operation. Uh, I think Leonard, your summary and story sums that up very nicely in terms of the challenges that we face individually and also as a group and often um, very grateful when we have colleagues that join us in the MDT that go in the same direction that we want to go in, but often the MDT can also be a very dangerous place as well. Um, but um, look, I, I think in our, in our cohort of patients who are inherently very sick, irrespective of what the pathology is, no matter what the age is, um, I think you you, you summarise you that well when you try and look at the research that you do and how you're trying to apply that in your day-to-day practice. It just makes you think twice as to just because I have the technical skill set, should I be offering an operation for the sake of offering one? And that um, I think demonstrates your growth and development as you continue in this journey as a consultant surgeon, Leonard. So, um, and I think it takes a long time for all of us to sort of be mm. comfortable with the idea of not offering an operation as well, because it's just easier to offer one, is it? Yeah, you're exactly right. That's exactly it. Yeah. Um, but um, I guess if we could pivot here, Sam, and I, I hope you agree with me here, um, maybe we should uh, pursue a slightly different line of questioning here um, to get... Less depressing, perhaps. <laughs> <laughs> to get a, get, get a feel from Leonard in terms of... Um, you know, the reasons for pursuing an advanced research degree. Now, I think you've already touched on this, Leonard, in many ways in your earlier thoughts, but if you could just um, perhaps center it now on what you think it brings to your clinical work doing the research that you do, and, and you've also touched on that as well, but also how do you feel like it makes you better as a clinician, as a colleague, as a teacher, as a mentor to trainees that you have in, the, in your unit? And, um, you know, what, what words of advice do you have for trainees out there that want to pursue some form of advanced degree? Sure. Um, look, I think this is a question that is going to face more and more um, junior medical staff, unaccredited registrars and registrars coming through, um, especially with, you know, how competitive it is now to begin with getting on the program. And it will get to the stage where research is par for the course, right? Where you just have to do it. Now, the first thing I would say, though, to all of this is regardless of where you want to do research, at what stage of your career, the number one message I would have is don't do it unless it's something that you really enjoy or have a passion for. Because at the end of the day, we are trained to be surgeons. We're not trained to be uh, academics. Now, I say that carefully, but we have some training in medical school perhaps and unless we've gone through a higher degree we're not trained to be academics and it's very kind of reasonable and perfectly fine if as you know an individual registrar trainee you decide that you prefer to go down a clinical or teaching or administrative pathway even there's many different things you can do with your career 
to choose research is one that requires dedication. It requires time. And time is something I'll touch on because that's, that's the biggest thing to, you have to be prepared for. And, um, and a, a level of passion about it, because without that, I think it would be potentially not really worth the while to do it. If I'm honest, in terms of an overall high degree. Now, um, having said that, I would encourage everyone to at least have an interest in research. So you don't have to do it through a high degree, right? You don't have to um, do a high degree just to do research. So there's plenty of clinicians and vascular surgeons out there who are perhaps client primary clinicians, but will be involved with academic projects. And that's perfectly fine. That's just another way of doing things. The reason I chose to go down this more heavily kind of, I guess you call it a clinician researcher is kind of what the NHMRC model is. Um, is that I think for me, uh, I always wanted to do research, right? And I've been doing it throughout. And so I think the first thing is the timing of the time you do research depends on a number of factors. The key factors I would suggest to be considered are where you are in your personal life, which no one can answer other than you and your family, for example. Uh, the second is what kind of future model practice you might want to have. So for example, if you never want to be a clinician researcher in the future, whether or not, you know, I may not be, for example, highly recommending a PhD now during your training, because that's obviously a whole different pathway. Um, and the other thing is, uh, I guess, timing. So um, if, if I could just touch, because I can't answer for everyone's personal side of things, that's for you to decide that the time that it requires depends. And I think you touched on this yogi just earlier about like what type of degree, even if it's a master's or a PhD. Um, and in essence, the way I, I, and I don't know, I haven't done a master's, but from my experiences so far, master's is much less time intensive, much less rigorous, and you're much more likely to obtain a master's of surgery. And so I think for those people who either you know, maybe had, didn't have a lot of research experience. We just don't know if a PhD is as much of a, you know, involvement time commitment wise that they want to do, because remember you can convert a master's to a PhD. So it, it's sort of a middle ground and it's something that is worth considering. The only thing I'd say is that with a master's, it's not internationally recognized. So if you're going to, for me, and this question was put to me when I was applying to go for this fellowship overseas was, do you want to do a master's or a PhD? And I said, do a PhD. So if I'm spending two years of my life doing research, I might as well make it three and make it internationally recognized wherever I go. It just, it, it's, it's to me, it was just the thing that made sense. Um, but that's going to vary for different people. The next thing I'd say is um, timing wise. I'm biased because I'm doing it now. I got to say though, uh, my recommendation would be to do it when you are a qualified specialist if you can have the time commitment to be able to do so. The reason is that you've, you guys have both seen how many students at various points of training now, many of them now even in med school or residency doing, taking time to PhDs. A, the amount of pulling power you have with a university and with relevant supervisors is different, isn't it? You, you, and your mm -hmm. clinical oversight and your experience and knowing what's truly relevant to a study, if you're doing a clinical study, now if you're doing a, basic science project. I can't speak for that. It's a whole different thing. But if you're doing a clinical project or clinical high degree, um, I just feel like you might be a bit junior. And unfortunately what ends up happening is unless you've got a really good set of supervisors, 
many a time you end up being the workhorse for that research group. And you end up doing a lot of the work, um, but maybe for a very little recognition and perhaps with a very little understanding about what you're actually doing, simply because you're not senior enough. And now personally, I know this because I seriously considered doing a PhD during training. But one thing I also held at heart was my number one priority is to be a vascular surgeon. I need to be able to deal with the situations in front of me and operate. Okay. And it's like learning a bike in my mind, which is if it, if the, the board or whoever society says you need five years to learn to ride a bike kind of made less sense to me to say, let me do it for two years, have a break and come back and do it for three years because I just didn't see how that was going to work. And if I had to pick, I was going to pick my clinical work and learn how to operate first. And I think establishing your ability to do that early is much more important than pursuing some side PhD project. That, that'd be my, my message from all of that. The other thing is that if you're going to do a PhD, you need funding. So um, I would, I would highly recommend getting funding because otherwise you're really going to find it difficult if you're not funded by a scholarship, both from the point of view, obviously financially, but also from the point of view of making that PhD have impact and making it recognizable. And for example, if you truly want an academic pathway in the future, if you don't get a PhD scholarship, for example, which is the, um, you know, the, the Commonwealth government one or the NHMRC, you're already at a bit of a disadvantage if you apply for NHMRC grants in the future. So that's just something to think about. And the reason for that is when you're a consultant, everything happens easier. You, you, you know, how, how many consultants do you know doing PhDs, surgeons wise? You're already in a one. league of your own. You know, you, and, and I'm looking and, at him. And, and I don't know, but there, there are disadvantages. I'm not trying to sugarcoat everything, but mm. look, I, I would say I got, you know, funding easily, both from RACS and from the, the Commonwealth government. Um, my relationship with my supervisors is different and wonderful because I speak to them as colleagues and I'm really, I take the reins of my PhD. Like my PhD supervisors, I can tell you guys right now, have almost like very little input or final, sorry, not little input, uh, let me rephrase that, have little overall final say about what happens to my PhD. As in, I'm in the driver's seat. They're there to support me through that journey. And I think mm. that makes it so much more fulfilling. And that's why I chose to do it uh, as a consultant. But yeah, I, I think your your point on the impact that your work has, especially as a consultant versus a registrar, really shapes the your mindset and framework for for the project itself. I, uh, you know, having having to supervise junior registrars and projects, often you can understand the challenges that they face because they don't completely understand either the science mm. or the application or the value add that the project brings. And so then embarking on an advanced degree in that environment where perhaps your knowledge isn't quite there yet makes that even more challenging. And as you suggest, um, it changes your dynamic and your relationship with the people who supervise you because, um, for them to be able to get some output, you have to churn the data as opposed to actually providing some intellectual content to the conversation, which can be a challenge, especially when you're a junior member of staff. Um, and I think kindly you've also touched on the differences in terms of PhD versus masters. Um, if I could just sidetrack very briefly, because mm. Sam, Sam has a masters. Um, and oh, sorry, so, Sam. I don't mean to be discouraging in any way, shape or form. It's just a different. No, no. But um, what I, Sorry, before I let you sidetrack, Yogi, I, I think you made a good point there, Leonard. Like you, you're, 
your project is kind of it's crystal clear as to what you're trying to achieve because you're thinking not about the project like I got to get a project out because I need to yeah yeah get the yeah. paper like when you when you're you've got a patient in your mind who you're applying it to because you're the clinician making the decision so it's yep. interesting that you can just really kind of appreciate the difference I, I and to be honest, when you write to, so when you submit a, a paper to a yep. journal and when you do revisions, it, it makes the acceptability of the paper so much higher because as a reviewer, I know I'm just another clinician on the other side of the world who's looking at the paper. And if there's a little clinical relevance or whatever, and it doesn't make sense in a clinical setting, it's already on, on the, on the bad books of a reviewer's mind. So yeah, you're right. Exactly. Yeah. So just to contrast that, Sam, you did your master's during training or prior to training. Um, uh. And I guess there's a lot of junior registrars and preset trainees and residents that are embarking on a similar journey that you did, Sam. Do you, did, I guess now looking back on that, what do you feel like is the value add to that advanced degree that you achieved back in the day? Well, um, yeah, good, good question. Yeah, I guess like, to be honest, like a lot of it was, um, with the what kind of Leonard alluded to earlier, like it is trying to get onto training to some degree, and um, it's a shame in a way because it, in some ways it's a, a means to an end. And so that meant I did it really now ten years ago, but I kind of still uh, now now I kind of at the other side where I'm like, well, I want to do some research again, but I've kind of forgotten a lot of those skills about you know doing literature reviews, although and you know um, all those like basic kind of pico type things you got to go through like a lot of that to be honest is so long ago that i've forgotten a lot of it and so now you know i can see what where Leonard's getting it like now you know he's got the question in his mind that he wants answered and he's got the tools to go about it so sort of contrasting the different approaches obviously one is to get to help you get onto the training program and now Leonard's trying to use it to look after patients which is obviously now just mm. a completely um different set of objectives so yeah, it is. It's definitely a sad indictment of where we are with the with training in this country, um, and that's not just with surgery. There are other specialties that also face a similar predicament, where um, our sort of preset trainees are are expected to have um, a large volume of research to sort of get points towards their CVs and advanced degrees, which. Um, are useful to buff up their CV, but I guess the value add to their entire career is lost because when they can utilize that information, it's later on in their career. And often, as Sam alluded to, almost 10 years down the track, you're looking back thinking, well, I actually learned all these skills back in the day and I need to, I need to refresh or get that information back to me. Um, I... I, I, I'm, I guess I, just to sort of put it out there, diff, I was slightly different. I don't have an advanced degree, but I did a bit of research like everyone else that wanted to get onto training and could definitely see the value add that both a master's and a PhD can provide to an individual. Um, and so I guess for those of you listening out there, and I think Leonard touches on this incredibly well, the decision is in incredibly personal when it comes to deciding mm. what suits you and what, what time frame works for you. Um, and you, it sort of depends on where you're up to in your life. But also the other thing that I would stress that Leonard did, did suggest is you've got to have a passion for this. If you don't have a passion, it's lost. Um, and then you're committing yourself to a huge undertaking without 
really feeling comfortable that you're going to get through to the end. Um, yeah. And there's nothing worse than committing to a three to five year PhD without an outcome. I think, um, I think you're exactly right there, Yogi. And um, that I would say that's probably the number one message is you, you really just need to, it's got to, because at the end of the day, you, you want to enjoy what you do in life, right? You, you really don't want to add, add we're surgeons, we have enough stresses in what we do day to day. Um, enough work-life balance uh, stresses as well, as you as you well know. Um, so you don't want to add anything to that, that it is already stressful, even if you enjoy it, to put it that way. There are definitely stresses that come with an extra time commitment, but it, it can't be something that's unenjoyable, like, or it can't be something that you hate because that's not worth your time. It's not worth your while to do that. Um, and so I guess that leads nicely into, because I was going to touch on, um, you know, I, I tend to, I, I intend to present a balanced view, which is, yeah, I'm biased. I, I'm doing this at this point for this reason, and I see the advantages. But um, I, I tell you, at the same time, I'm experiencing also some of the difficulties and the challenges of doing a PhD when you're a consultant. And part of that is that when you're a consultant, you 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 just wanting to get out there and operate, right? And also your life, because so for example, I've got two young kids, so two under the age of two, and. Um, so largely my PhD at the moment has been done in the wee hours of the morning. It's all hours of night. It's random times. You, and you're trying to constantly, be, you know, you may be doing a bit of typing while one of the kids is jumping around doing something while you're supervising. So it's, da- it's semi-organized doing some work. chaos. You know, semi-organized <laughs> chaos at best um, is the way I would put it. But uh, I guess the other thing to say there is, okay, so you need to be prepared for that time commitment. And one thing I had to do was, unfortunately, you know, I had to give up one of my consultant posts because it was in the recognition that if I kept that one, you know, I, I'm not a superhuman. I can't do everything. And if you try and do everything, you're not going to do anything well. So mm. I, I just I just said, okay, now that's it. I've got to give up one consultant post because this is the dream and the passion that I want to pursue into the future. Now, I wouldn't advocate giving up all your consultant posts and doing a full-time PhD in that sense of the word because I think that's not the idea. Uh, but you know, and the other thing I'd say is you want to do, if you're doing it as a consultant, you've got the advantages, but the disadvantage you have is time because your time mm. pressures are even greater perhaps than a student. So mm. what you really want to be doing is you, so what I was touching on is you want maximal funding to help you through. You want maximal collegiate supervisory support to get, to pull all the weight, all the stops out to get you in touch with the correct networks, collaboratives, etc., to get things done very quickly. You, you want to be publishing ASAP. You, you want to be trying to, I know they say full-time PhD is, you know, what, three to three and a half years, 40 hours a week, you know, uh, sure. But for me, you, you want to aim to finish your PhD in a year or two. And because everything balloons out at the end of the day, right? The last thing you want to be doing as a consultant is spending four or five years, uh, if you can help it, doing a full-time PhD. Now, if you do a part-time, that's a different story because you obviously have less, you know, you know, less commitment, you have time to do other things. But if you're going to do a full-time PhD, it's it's go, 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 because you cannot afford to dilly-dally and, oh, yeah, I'm just going to take my time and do this study. Or do, you, you just, you, your job is to get the PhD done. And, and you know, once that's done, that's it. A PhD is a PhD, it's done. But, you, you know, you, you've got to get back into the full clinical realm ASAP. So for me, my, my view of the PhD is it's a necessary stepping block to do what I need to do in the future. But I also have to recognize that time commitments cannot go on forever. 
they, you know, for example, just with kids, right? You guys all know with kids, like it's, it's, it's very difficult to juggle and you cannot be doing a PhD for five years with young kids. It's just, it's something that would be, would do most people's minds in, right? So I think that that's a really real uh, realization that, that that's just something you have to consider. So I guess that's what I will put out there is don't think that me saying doing a PhD as a consultant, oh, that's a fairy tale. That's the best thing you're ever going to do. You have to recognize there's going to be other stresses as well. And perhaps, I mean, this is a, a plug for Linda, my wife, because you need a very understanding partner if you're going to do this as well. Uh, and that's no joke. You, you just really need an understanding yeah. family, partner, support network. It's not something you can do on your own. So um I would just put that, I guess, out there. That's you have to consider that. So, just also curious, how, how do you kind of um, avoid being distracted by your clinical work and focusing on the um, PhD, apart from doing it in the middle of the night? Yeah, um, you you have to section your brain. <laughs> that doesn't come out right. Yeah, <laughs> but but you, you need a you need a really rapid on off switch. It's not easy to do, uh, and I'll be the first to admit that. Because for example, I might be on call, I might be writing a paper and then all of a sudden I get called as a rupture. You, but you know, you, you can't, at the same time, you can't just not do a PhD for a week because you're on call. So you have to be able, the moment that call comes through, for example, that's it. Turn the computer off, flip a switch, off you go to hospital. And it is difficult, but you just have to do it. You, you and, and you can't afford to sort of, you know, and the, the one thing I'd say though is yeah, you're, maybe I don't know if this is what you're touching on, Sam, but you, you cannot afford to let your mind wander onto research when you're dealing with something truly clinical. Do you, you know what I mean? Like if you're, if you're on the way to a rupture, you, you cannot be thinking about your research project. You, you absolutely yeah. have to have that, and that's what I mean by sectioning. It needs to be something that's, okay, that's a compartmentalized issue for later. My focus now is on X, Y, or Z. And that's how I deal with it is mm. I've got 20, 30 different priorities. I'll name one, two, or three it's prioritization. I name one, two, or three that are absolutely important. If I've got something that's crazy important, well, everything stops until this is done. So for me, that's like kind of my mental mind map of how it all has to work. Otherwise, you're right. If you get things mixed up and blended together, it's not not a healthy sort of situation. Yeah, and then you know, you're sort of sitting there working on your PhD. Oh, I wonder what the patient's uh, CT from this morning. Oh, yeah, that's that's true exactly. Because yeah. the flip side is also true. Like otherwise, you're not doing. You're not efficient either because you're constantly thinking about something else. Yeah, and then you. So you know, it's very much like. Um, and I'll, it's funny because I'll put it to you this way: it, I never realized what an hour meant and how valuable it was until I did a PhD, which mm-hmm. is yeah. In one day, I might have an hour to do. What, because their uni says 40 hours a week, right? It's a full-time PhD. I might have to do a four, what a student does in 40 hours in five hours. Yep. And that really, I think, puts into perspective how much efficiency you need to have to pull this off. Because let's face it, most consultant vascular surgeons do not have truly 40 hours a week to be doing a full-time PhD. It's just with a family, with practice, it's not possible. So you, you've got to be very, very efficient. Yep. So how much um, of your um sorry Yogi, how much yeah, yeah. of your kind of week or month do you think is work at um St Vincent's and how much do you think is PhD? Uh, St Vincent's and, and other things because you you sort of yeah yeah I guess you know if you discount personal life stuff that's family and whatnot because um, I've got young kids, I'm still at home a lot looking after them and things, yep. which is, by, by the way, one of the advantages of the PhD, you do have that flexibility to be at home with your young kids, mm. although that's a different set of challenges, but you are at least home and saying hello. 
Um, but uh, yeah, I, I think it's probably, it was probably more like a 50-50 mix. But yep. now that I've sort of published a number of things, it's it's changing, right? And probably going to, I'm thinking, you know, it's probably changing. And recently it's become very much more clinically focused. And it changes too over time because sometimes you're waiting for things to happen this is the beauty, you know, as a consultant, you can mix and match. Like sometimes you're waiting for a paper to be accepted or to uh. be reviewed and okay, well, I can't do anything else anyway. Well, why don't I do a bit more clinical work or, you know, yeah. and you can chop and change. So I can't, I'm sorry, I can't give you like an exact percentage because it, it happens so fluidly that I can't uh. put a number on it, but it, but it just has to, you just have to vary it. You must never forget one or the other, but you need to balance it and you need to achieve both at the end of the day. Yep. So Leonard, I want you to put on your best Terminator uh, as sort of approach to the next question I've got to you, because I feel sure. like this should be blasted out of the water, whatever way or shape that I present the question to you. Um, you know, there is definitely, and for a while previously, there was a vibe that um, a surgeon that's interested in research cannot be a good surgeon. And I guess you've been you've been privileged to work with a, a range of surgeon scientists in your own university and institution who completely debunk that. I think as surgeons, we absolutely should play a role actively in not only performing the research that we want, but also advocating for it and supporting junior staff as they try and figure out themselves what what the important issues are in the field and particularly in vascular surgery. But um, can I give you a couple of minutes just to sort of fire at will and take down this sort of antiquated notion that a, a surgeon scientist does not make a good surgeon? Yeah, sure. Um, the first thing I'd say is I think the college's definition and terminology surgeon scientist doesn't really sit well with me in some ways because I, I would think something a term like clinician researcher is, is more fitting because that's what we're really doing we're not we're not separating surgeons and scientists that's a whole different field but what we're doing is um blending two uh, related but different skill sets together now, where this whole notion comes from, I think, is you can't be a jack of all trades. It's kind of like the classic saying, right? You can't be a jack of all trades, which is true to a certain extent. But the analogy I give is, um, so let's say you, you're not involved in research at all. Let's say you, you're just a, you know, you, you're a clinician who is either involved in teaching or administration or whatever else you want to do. Um, and let's say we give your... Uh, operating ability eight out of 10. I mean, I'm just putting, it's oversimplifying it. Let's say we give the technical skills eight out of 10, yeah? Um, now let's say there's some very world-renowned vascular surgeon in a specific field who you might say is their technical skill for this particular operation, for example, is 10 out of 10. Now, let me put it to you. When, you, when those two surgeons operate on the same patient, how much difference is a patient gonna know about it at the end of the day? But let's say another another surgeon had an ability of three out of 10. I think the patient would know, mm. okay? So what I'm trying to illustrate there is that um, you don't have to be the 10 out of 10, you know, wonderkind with your hands uh, type surgeon to achieve exactly the same result. I'm not saying you should be three out of 10, but what I'm saying is that there are maybe one in a million uh, very gifted people, which I'm not part of that club, who are 10 out of 10 operators 
10 out of 10 researchers uh, who can just do everything. Mm. I'm not. But yes, you can't be jack of all trades, 10 out of 10 everything, but you can be jack of all trades good enough or very good at many things. And to me, that is really what a rounded surgeon's all about. So just because you're 10 out of 10 good at operating doesn't make you the world's best surgeon, right? Mm. Um, and so that's the way I see it, which is if you, it, it really, I, I agree in that it's, it's a bit of a misnomer in that if you do research, you're bad at operating because who's the judge of that and in what circumstance that occurred. Now, having said that, I would say in my experience that a lot of people perhaps who've not just invested surgery in other specialties, if we've taken a break during training to do research full time, they may have been the ones that ended up in a bit more hot water at the end of it because it's understandable. It just takes that long to get on top of everything. And if you take a huge break, it's not a one-year project, right? This is a three-year mm-hmm. thing. You just away from it too long and perhaps you just don't have the exposure that you need. So that I think is where perhaps some of the, the notion of the researcher who can't operate comes into it. And I mean, it's not going to be necessarily very popular, but remember also some people who maybe needed more time to build their operating skills also decided to go and do a research project to give them that time to do so as well, because it's a very prescriptive five, six year training program where everyone's accepted to all fall into the same spectrum. Right. But just because you take a bit longer than other people to do something doesn't mean you're bad at something. It's just, you might be, you know, maybe with your hands technically not as great, but you might, I don't know, have wonderful teamwork skills. You might have mm-hmm. wonderful teaching ability. Like it's just all part of that different mix. And uh, the, the macho-ness of us um, in this surgical world specialty type of thing, which is, oh, I can do everything. I'm, I'm great. I can operate. And it's technically based is the traditional mindset, isn't it? And so, mm-hmm. um, but, but yeah, I, I would say the, that's where it comes into the, the understanding that you don't have to be the best to still be good enough. And um, if you're good enough and you have the energy, do you want to think about another way you could contribute, uh, whether that be research or whatever else it might be? And um, so, I mean, I would say not even myself, I would just say looking at the people I've worked with, some of them are maybe professors or associate professors of such and such. But actually when we refer to them in, in public or private settings, we're not referring to a professor of research or an associate professor of research in such and such. We're referring to Mr. or Dr. So-and-so because the last time I referred to this person, my patient came back ranting and raving about how well the, you know, they treated them or the process or the technical or whatever it might be. And that's ultimately what we do as clinicians, right? We're not necessarily going, well, now I don't necessarily refer to someone because oh, they're, they're, they're a professor of surgery. They have 500 mm-hmm. patients. But I'm yep. still referring to them because they're a good clinician. So mm-hmm. I think that may be the, the the difference. And remember also perhaps many years ago, it just wasn't required or maybe the research was not part of the training. And so there's, if something, it's like a bit like, you know, if you don't understand something all the way, mm-hmm. you may not fully understand why you need to do it or perhaps even how it all works. And you have some sort of suspicion too about, oh. What is this? What is this Leonard guy doing? Like he's <laughs> in a dark room somewhere in the middle of the night doing God knows what, typing <laughs> random documents that somehow get <laughs> published in some random journal. I mean, that's fine. I honestly yeah. think that's how people think, but that's okay. I think 
um, you just have to be confident in your own operating ability. Yeah. And um, that that's that's all I can say. I can't judge someone's operating ability, but it's just. I mean, Leonard, I think you've touched on um, an important facet, which I still believe very fundamentally, which is um, as surgeons, we're not all born with the technical skills to to be a surgeon where it's a learned skill and everyone can learn it. And that doesn't, you know, um, we have the privilege of sharing that opportunity with a whole bunch of people. But I also think the other part of being a surgeon isn't just a technical skill, as you mentioned, it's all the other aspects, the non-technical aspects that make us who we are. And as and our, and our patient cohort uh, demands that of us, if we're just purely a technical specialty, I think, um, we would not get as much satisfaction out of what we do day in, day out. And I think that's really got, that has, I think, changed the vibe of what is the definition of a surgeon as we sort of pursue this career going forward. Um, I, can I also then stretch your thoughts onto uh, hopefully the last question of the night here, Sam, if you if that's okay. Um, uh-huh. I guess the state of play of vascular research in Australia, you know, um, as a specialty compared to other uh, other subspecialties such as colorectal, which have always had a very strong academic interest, uh, even orthopedics, which have a very, very strong academic presence in this country, the vascular surgical research community has always been a little bit sparse in Australia, um, which is quite distinct from where we were potentially in the in the in the mid 1950s onwards as a country we've always had a great stake in terms of how much we've provided and contributed to society but that's really all shifted to america and to europe yep. and we've sort of lost some of the prestige and a lot of uh a lot of our academics that are now in positions in universities typically are position there as clinicians rather than pure research orientated individuals which is fine i guess that's reflective of the mm the challenges of doing large outcome-based research or even at large um, patient uh, randomized control trials, for instance. I think we we struggle with that in this country. But just if you could perhaps draw this conversation to a close tonight, Leonard, with just your thoughts as to where do we stand and what do we need to do for our junior colleagues coming through? Sorry, Sambo's got his... And I, I just want to tack on a question. Like some of those viewpoints about uh, not being able to be a jack-of-all-trades, do you think that's unique to our specialty because as Yogi alluded to, there are other special surgical specialties in ANZ who are quite um, um, a bit more heavy on the research than we are. Yeah. Um, basically that's uh, a very insightful you know, observation. And I think certainly I would agree with that. Um, from my perspective, I think I view it all as uh, momentum. I think it's a bit abstract perhaps, uh, but it, what happens is you need uh, you need somebody or a group of people to be doing something before you can th- even think about getting something meaningful and powerful going. And it takes a lot of effort to get something moving at the very beginning. But once it's moving, that's when everything else becomes easier. And that's really a metaphor for saying that at the moment, what's happened is that you're right, Yogi, like we, we were at the forefront of, you know, academia, if you will, or, or uh, vascular surgical research a number of decades ago now, really. And um, what's happened is if you don't keep feeding that machine uh, and if you don't keep doing things, it will slowly grind to a halt 
And it's so much harder to get it moving again. And that's really kind of what I'm experiencing. And how I experienced that firsthand is that's the reason why I wanted to go overseas in the first place to do a PhD. Because for example, if you take Melbourne, I can't speak to other states. Um, I'm not aware of a PhD vascular surgeon in Melbourne. And I've worked in most vascular centers in Melbourne. Are you Sam? I don't know of a vascular surgeon with a PhD in mm. Melbourne. No. Um, and I'm masters. Yes. But PhD, as you know, is a different commitment as a different thing altogether, but I'm not aware of one that that's, that's a problem mm. because that gave me a problem who, who's mm. going to be my supervisor. Yeah. Mm. Like, uh, so, and, and what I, and that's the thing is I intend to hopefully provide some sort of avenue in the future for someone else, because I don't want to be the only one doing this. It's very mm. hard road. If you're the only one doing this, the idea is to get people involved and I'm actively sort of, getting you know, our junior staff involved, even not necessarily high degrees, but maybe in the future. It's just sort of just something to put in the number of people's minds. This is happening. We've got this program available in Melbourne. Um, but where I'm getting at with that is I, I don't think we do enough. There, are, I think there are a whole wide variety of reasons for that, which we probably don't have time to go into tonight, but there are many reasons for that, for good or for bad. It is, I think, a pity because... I think that vascular disease, like cardiovascular disease, is one of the most academic fields of all medicine. It is your quintessential cardiovascular risk profile patient who has, you know, uh, and part of the problem is that, and I, this is a plug, but we need funding. But you can't get funding unless you've got a group of people who are doing big things to begin with. And you're in this vicious cycle where, you know, like, um, so I compare with my wife, who's a gastroenterologist. So when she did PhD, I'm not sort of putting her PhD down in any way, shape or form. It's just, for example, it was just so much easier. She literally said, I'm doing a PhD. The head of department is a professor of gastroenterology who has numerous NHMRC grants and research nurses already in the department who, you know, in essence says, what of 20 different projects would you like to be involved with mm. and who would you like me to hook you up with as co-supervisors? Here's a research nurse who can help you with your GCP certificates and everything else. Here's someone who can help you consent and recruit all the patients. And yes, of course. And she's got other people who are in a department who are even more heavily involved, who, who are basically like, you know, of, of course they're going to next get their paper added to some big journal because they had 2000 patients recruited. Now, do you think that's mm. going to be possible for me, for example, as an individual researcher, it's not. No. Um, but you have to start somewhere. Yeah. And mm. so that's sort of what I I found the beauty and what what I did was as a before the PhD was I sort of learned all the skills of systematic review meta analysis, and I think that's really helped in this instance where there's not a lot of funding, there's not a lot of manpower, but the data is there. You just need a brain to do it. Mm. and some time and dedication. And so I've actually just spent, you know, a lot of PhD learning every single aspect of those scientific methodologies. And actually it's the starting point, like is, is a research project. You, you learn this, you get some momentum going, you get more people involved, you get a bit more momentum going mm. and you get more and more. And then one day, you know, you've, you've either had enough of a track record or someone else overseas wants to join. You. So I've got, mm. you know, some people in Bristol uni who, suddenly took an interest oh this is, sounds interesting and then you start talking and then you and then suddenly you get you know this is like just how it works you, you slowly 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 pick up more and more and more and more people and at some point you go right 
I've got enough. I'm going for the NHMRC grant or the MRFF grant or whatever. And suddenly that's when you get, you know, the big one, $2 million grants. And only then can you be doing what we envisage as other specialties already doing. But that's because they had everyone before them doing that in a setup system already. And that's where I'm getting is Mm. you're right. There's absolutely no system infrastructure for any of that here. And so at the moment you've got to develop it. Um, And the, the, the reason I hooked up with um, Peter Chung in our university was I saw a similar message uh, and shared experience. So when he started many, many, many years ago in orthopedics, he came back from training overseas in a blank academic system. And so he built academia in orthopedics pretty much from scratch in Melbourne by himself at the beginning. And, um, so I've sort of using that as a, him as a great mentor because he's sort of showing me the ropes about how this might all work. Um, so the, these are some of the intricacies I think you have to think about. And for sure, you're right. We don't have the right infrastructure, but you know, nothing's impossible. And um, it, it's, it's the, it's the road less, the path less trodden, isn't it? The, yeah. the more difficult road that, um, that is often more rewarding if you can get there in the end. So, so, so presumably it would then make sense to have one center in Melbourne as an academic hub then? Uh, that may be true, but actually I see it differently in that I'm, I, I actually actively encourage every centre to be. I, I would value collaborating with everyone because I think one lesson I've learned is people who do research on their own get so far, uh. but they're never the ones who get really far. And if you have this instant mindset, oh, I want to keep everything to myself, Oh, I've established everything. I want to do it all my own, my own. It's all me. No, that's not, not, I think that's really dangerous. I think if people want to do research and they want to set up in their own center, I would be all for it. Honestly. Like, I think that's, that's the way to go because really at the end of the day, I don't want to be the only one. <laughs> it's lonely. Otherwise. <laughs> yeah. I mean, Leonard, I think you, you've um, delivered a powerful message, especially in terms of where we sit with research in this country in vascular surgery. I think, um, you know, a slightly controversial view is the fact that there are a lot of cynics in our in our field who look at research uh, perhaps um, as being more flippant than anything else. And I think that really needs to change with the years to go ahead. Um, and just to sort of uh, just to take the opportunity, I think the there are many ways in which um, trainees and preset trainees can look at research and um, engaging in people like Leonard who are undertaking higher degrees and contributing to some of the work that they do helps. But I also think there have been multiple collaborative trainee networks that have been formed in other specialties. We have one in vascular surgery, which is the Australian New Zealand Vascular Trials Network, which. Um, we are actively looking to try and recruit more junior members of staff to try and put projects out. And as Leonard suggests, that if we ask the questions, we empower ourselves to be able to answer those questions and then also improve the quality of care we provide to our patients. And so if I could end tonight with just re-emphasizing that to those of you that are listening to us, that research really is fundamental to what we do and as surgeons if we don't own it and we don't take it then um, we're missing the opportunity and we miss the opportunity to build the momentum into the future uh, that will allow us to continue to contribute not only locally but globally so sam if that's all right with you we'll thank leonard tonight what a great discussion a really interesting discussion and in terms of the state of play of 
not only your own personal journey and research um, in the post fellowship consultant life that you lead, but also where you sort of see things going. And we genuinely appreciate your time, Leonard. Not at all. Thank you for, for having me. Thanks, Leonard. I think, uh, can you be my supervisor? You've inspired me. <laughs> I, I can't, I can't. Uh, promise to inspire you. I hope I inspire you, but I don't inspire everyone. <laughs> uh, but yeah, sure. <laughs> you want to, you can put up with me. You, you, you've you put up with me for a year. You just have to decide whether you'd be able to do it for three. <laughs> I've, I've, I've re-downloaded Z- Zotero during this. Uh... Uh, uh, thank, okay. thank you for having me. That, that was good. Yep. Thanks, Leonard. Thank you. Thanks, Leonard. Not at all. Um, anything else or is that... <laughs>